Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com. Empire. Tennis is already global, but how does it truly modernize? We have been ahead of the curve in certain areas and behind the curve in other areas, but um, ahead of the curve because I think we, we are the first sport to have gone totally digital in uh, the Chinese market, for example. That's Mickey Lawler, president of the Women's Tennis Association. It's not just the U.S. they are open to. It's ideas from around the world. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. So the final major of the tennis season is in full play up in New York as we tape. And Mickey Lawler is ready to watch a new American champion get crowned and discuss the not-too-distant future that one day she's going to have to engineer life without the Williams sisters. Plus, we'll have an in-depth look at how the sport intends to use technology to attract more fans from around the globe. You know, tennis stars are really marketable. NBA players are as well, but they've been jumping headfirst into investment and innovation, and we'll check in on the latest from their summit. But first, the future is now. The robots are coming, and they might just replace those humans who never seem to get it right at the highest level of the judged Olympic sports. Louise Radnovsky is covering developments heading into the Tokyo Olympic Games next summer for the Wall Street Journal. Hi, Louise. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, what kind of technology are we talking about here? We're talking about a form of technology generally understood to be uh, on the verge of artificial intelligence. What gymnastics judging currently has for its replay system in questions where uh, a score is challenged is, is pretty crude. It's, it's a video that can zoom in and out. Uh, and what they are going to adopt for the 2019 World Championships and potentially then deploy at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics is a form of video that allows you to look at something in three dimensions from all angles, measure the angle of, for example, uh, a gymnast's legs uh, relative to the rest of their body, uh, the height that they get, all of these things that are qualitative measures of how well, a particular skill or a set of skills was performed. How are the athletes reacting to this possibility of this being implemented? There are mixed reactions, um, but a number of 
coaches that we talked to liked the idea in some respects, uh, as did other gymnastics officials. They had seen poor judging decisions over the years. Uh, they had complained that there were too many judges that couldn't tell the difference between three twists and four twists or two and a half twists and three and a half twists. And to be fair, some of these routines are moving very quickly. Uh, and within them, the particular elements are absolutely mind-boggling, as anyone who saw Simone Biles' triple double would understand. It's very, very hard, except in slow motion, to track what exactly is going on there. So they saw the potential application to be really useful. The concerns that I heard were mostly about speed um, of of uh, competition, which already has delays as you wait for a human judge to score, the concern being that adding a sort of form of VAR would slow things down even more. And the other main issue is transparency. While there was certainly an understanding that robots could be more objective than humans, there's always the question of who's programming the robots effectively, whether you have faith in the International Gymnastics Federation running a competition not to use the... Uh, robots to manipulate things even more but as everybody who follows gymnastics and figure skating and other judge sports knows and maybe this is part of the appeal of those judge sports for some spectators there's a lot of human drama in yes. right now and this would in theory sidestep some of that russian judge ukrainian judge american judge french judge stuff that uh both drives what some people find fascinating about the sport and drives what other people uh, would conclude, you know, is a factor in making it not a real sport in their eyes. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, this is happening in baseball in America now where they're testing out robotic umpires, and it does lead to a larger question of when does human subjectivity matter for a performance, especially in the case of routines, is what we're talking about here. They're all going to be a little bit different. The machines obviously can deduct for missed landings and poor form and all of that stuff, but how would it account for artistic enhancement? Well, I thought that the resistance was going to be really strong on the grounds of, of, of artistry. And I didn't find that in gymnastics. I did poke around a little bit on figure skating and find more concern there, where the routines are much more about telling a story. In gymnastics, there's a little bit of a curb on telling a story. Men don't actually use music at all in their floor routines. Women do, but they're not allowed to do the same kind of dramatic costume effects or makeup, for that matter, that figure skaters do. And so when I talked to a judge, uh, talked to a coach who really was renowned for the dance programs that she had put together over the years, Val Condesfield of UCLA, who did that Caitlin Ohashi routine that went viral and a whole lot of people saw it earlier this year, I assumed she was going to tell me that she thought this was a terrible idea, and she said it was great in her eyes. She said that the objective criteria for artistry and gymnastics are whether you're creating clear pictures, and whether you're keeping a choreographic flow, whether you're keeping the audience engaged. And she figured her routines were calibrated that they could achieve that standard with humans, but they were also so well calibrated that they could convince robots that they'd hit that standard too. Well, the judges very rarely speak about their decisions, and we know the robots won't. So that that's one change that will not happen in the Olympics, <laughs> regardless of what the result is of who gets the medals and who does it. Louise Radnovsky of the Wall Street Journal. Thank you, Louise. Of course. Thanks so much. Up next, WTA President Mickey Lawler on how tech will train the stars who follow the Williams sisters. This is the Future Sport Podcast.
Our guest this week is Mickey Lawler, who is the president of the Women's Tennis Association. And since we're talking about the future, who knew the future included the daughter of the owners of the Bills and Sabres, Jessica Pagula, winning a tournament here in my hometown of Washington, D.C., Mickey? Amazing. It, it is amazing. That was quite a win. And it was so, so good to see that she had her little mascot with her <laughs> when, she, uh, when she won the title. This beautiful little Australian shepherd came on court to congratulate her. <laughs> it was an amazing moment. Um, we'll get into the future of the play in a moment, but we're here to talk about the tech. And I want to talk about the future of the sport in terms of content. Let's start there. I mean, obviously, there's been a digital wave. What has that meant for women's tennis? It's, it's represented an incredible opportunity for women's tennis because for as long as I can remember being in the sport of tennis, the most outstanding part of tennis is the sto- are the stories that the athletes have, and um, and you know they're all they've been driven by something remarkable, uh, remarkable youth, remarkable experiences, things that happened in their lives, places where they grew up, and and tennis represented an opportunity to show what they were made of. And those stories were were always hard to tell because, you know, you had the live action on, on uh, television and, um, and time was and is very valuable on the linear platforms. So either you went to an event and, you know, you could, you could see the players in action, but it was really hard to, uh, to adopt the Olympic model, which which is that when when um, the Olympics happen, there's a huge amount of um, resources invested into telling the stories of these athletes who are all pretty much unknown. So in a very um, fast amount of time, in a very short amount of time, you have to uh, tell the the uh, the athlete story. So so that's the opportunity that it gives us. We can go much deeper into the sport and. Um, and so that is a great thing. Has the sport been ahead or behind the curve in this way with serving their fans? Well, I think we have been ahead of the curve in certain areas and behind the curve in other areas, but um, ahead of the curve because I think we we are the first sport to have gone totally digital in uh, the Chinese market, for example, and the Chinese example is a special example because in China you have CCTV, which is the national television network, and, and that's how television used to work in other countries as well. Um, you know, here you had NBC, ABC, CBS. They were the big broadcasters, and you had advertising supporting it. In other countries, you had national subsidies supporting them. So in China, you still have that model, and um, the, the the choice of the consumer was in the over-the-top area in the digital space, and so um, companies like Aishii, um and Aishi is our is our media partner in China. They and picture Aishi as a um, as a mix of Netflix and and YouTube. They came to us and and said we we want to tell the WTA story. Now that was of course because the stars aligned perfectly for us in China with 
the emergence of Lena and uh, and you know lead a star a superstar like Lena uh, drives a tremendous amount of interest in a country that has over a billion people. So so that that was ahead of the curve. Um, and then behind the curve, the direct to consumer platform for us, um, we stepped out of it for a year to to figure out what we wanted to do, really to do a better job than we were doing and to get, again, ahead of the curve. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a world, a space that changes very, very quickly. But now we're seeing that all the traditionally linear broadcasters are very focused on over the top. So the direct-to-consumer space is, is, again, hard to figure out because you want to protect the rights that um that the the broadcasters who are paying you um the the rights that they've bought and you know you want to service them as well as possible but you also want to serve the super fan so it's it evolves very quickly and it is something that uh, that needs a bit of a flexible approach but because it's changing for everybody it requires for all of us to work very closely together if that makes sense yeah i, I mean i was really going to end with this but i'll ask it now since we're talking about it five to ten years from now outside of wimbledon u.s open other majors which i assume are going to still have a linear way to watch and multiple ways to watch because of the global interest how are people going to watch your sport uh yeah they're going to watch it everywhere they're going to watch it on television. They're going to watch it on OTT because, you know, here in the st- in the states, for example, if you're a Verizon subscriber, you can watch it on your television, and you can watch it on your computer and on your mobile device. Um, I think that what is going to evolve is is the data cast. So the data cast I see as a as a broadcast, but. It's completely the match is told through data, and you've got somebody commentating uh, so that the whole thing makes sense. And if you can picture the half the NBA halftime show um, where the data is taken apart and and it's it's you know told into a story, I think that is going to grow and grow and grow. And especially the younger fan is very demanding when it comes to to data and insights and and this data is going to have several other applications that are important to the sport so um, so I think that that you will have lots of viewing choices and um, and and it's going to keep evolving you view that as the second screen experience that the the yes. typical traditional way of presenting matches will continue for in perpetuity and this is what you're discussing is what a lot of leagues are discussing second screen experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, I remember a couple of years ago at the U.S. Open having one of these sleepless nights and watching a um, a legendary match on ESPN, and and the commentators really were limited to, you know, beautiful backhand, uh, was that ball in or out? Um, there were no first serve percentages or you know the the data was very very superficial it was what the naked eye i could see and now we've got um really incredibly sophisticated cameras and um we have hawkeye technology and and that's just getting bigger and better and 
and cheaper so that we can deploy it on all courts. And so the data offering is, is going to be tremendous, and, and that's going to have applications as well for player health and predictive data and, so, um, and gaming, you know, which is, which is something that, that every sport has to look at. And, you know, you wish you didn't, but you do because it's the <laughs> highest form of fan engagement. And, um, or you wish, you wish you could look at it, but, but um, take away the unhealthy part of, of gaming. Um, there's a couple parts to that. I want to get back to, to the presentation because yeah. there is this feeling, as someone who's a fan of sports, there's a beauty to that sport and an artistic yeah. nature to that sport. And I guess you guys are going to have to toggle between what the future looks like and overloading a screen with analytics and data that takes away from what is the presentation, which has worked for years, the beauty of watching tennis players literally just play tennis. Well, hopefully it, we, we can be very selective and not overload the screen with, with data. Um, if, I could, if I could tell you that uh, the artistic part, the human performance part of the presentation will, will stay protected and intact. But if, for example, I could tell you that a certain player on her second serve, she moves in a foot and a half closer to the baseline, and that um, minimizes the ball speed by X amount, and it, um, it lowers the height that she clears the net by X amount. And, and what that does to um, the chances of a of a winner return, that's kind of really interesting stuff, right? If you can see, you can start seeing trends. And we have been ahead of the curve in terms of um, using this for real-time coaching with our technology partner, SAP. So we've worked very closely together to be precisely selective about that data because um, through what we have today, we can kill ourselves with data. But with SAP, we've worked out a, um, a, an on-court coaching technology, which is how we started with SAP, to take precisely what data is relevant to be additive and not to detract from the beauty of the game. And so your argument is, is very um, present in our minds. It's, it's, it's an incredibly important argument. And it also applies, in a way, to on-court coaching, for which we've received a lot of criticism in many instances um, because tennis is supposed to be the gladi gladiator sport where, you know, two, two people um, are out there alone and they battle it out and the best woman wins. And, um, and what we've seen is that by deploying on-court coaching, we add to the personalities on court uh, in every sport, the coach plays a major role. In tennis, this is starting to happen because, I believe, because we were ahead of the curve and we broke the mold on that one. But we also raised the level of the game, and that um, has backfired a little bit in the sense that now people say, God, you never know who's going to win. This week it's this person, that week, because the, there's a lot of depth to this game. And, um, and, you know, that has good sides and it has bad sides. But I believe that through, through this real-time data that's been very selective, the level of tennis has 
really been raised. Um, you had mentioned this um, predictive technology. There's a lot of data out there that is, is going to help predict um, for you. Yep. Um, what does that look like for the WTA? Well, that looks like, um, you know, when you look at, at specific trends that are really reliable, you can, you can predict very simple things that if you keep doing this, this is going to happen. Then you've got athlete tracking data, which is similar to the ball tracking data. And athlete tracking data can track movements, foot positioning, uh, weaknesses in, in, in joints, like weaknesses in, in ankles or, or knee positioning. You can really analyze um, biometrics and, and, you know, just physiology of movement that can later avoid injuries. So, you know, looking at little tweaks or big tweaks, um, but trying to optimize the athlete's movement and, um, and, and really avoid injury. Um, are, are the athletes pushing back at all about wearables for, for that specific reason that their biometrics would become public on some level? We know in some team sports, specifically baseball, yeah. they're, they're being careful about it. Uh, there's big yeah. contracts, obviously, on the line. So I, I know this is a solo sport, so it's different. But that seems to be a what would be a, a common risk for the players. We have had discussions about wearables, and and obviously the the biometric data is is private data. And um, is there a price at which a player will make it public? I, I really don't know. I, it, it's too too early to to say we d- we have not had um, discussions to that level yet, and and I think that uh, the athlete would have to have a very detailed understanding of what would happen to the data, how would it be used. Um, I, I think to to trade personal data for financial currency, I really don't see that happening there's got to be a, a, a bigger purpose. Uh, let's go back to one of those. I'm showing my age here. I'm, I'm the old fuddy-duddy now that likes tennis the way it was, don't need all the stats on my screen, and we have predictive, yeah. te- we have predictive technology here that's coming through. Um, I, I yeah. do wonder, I ask a lot of people who are in charge of these type of things, is, is sports being more predictable, is that actually a good thing? Well, I, I don't think you can ever fully make sports predictable because at the end of the day it's it's about human performance so i don't i don't see that happening um today there's a lot of of information about past performance that enables the fan to predict future present or future performance so the odds are based on that kind of data um you know, a fan who follows a certain team knows exactly what the strengths and weaknesses are of of athletes on the field, and and you know who's who's the the first player in that position, or that player is injured, in comes the second player who doesn't have as much experience, et cetera. So th- there is a lot of predictive information that we use in in engaging in sports but i think that 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 kind of makes it more interesting because 
there's always a the human factor that you can't account for. So, you know, it's never going to be a, a prescribed outcome because you've got all this information. Does that make sense? It does. At least that's how I see it. Yeah, I, I believe in the human spirit, too. I, I'm with you on that. <laughs> um, in terms of next players on the tour at the amateur levels around the world, um, how are you seeing training techniques changing as we modernize the way athletes come into prominence? So that's a very interesting question because I, I think that, that basically training is training, and, um, and, and I think that uh, it's, it's about honing in on your skills and, and working hard. I don't think there's a way around that at all. I do see that uh, there's much more camera work, video playback, uh, discussion and analysis about that. I do see that um, the the SAP data set that a a coach can look at after a match as well as during a match. I do see that being discussed a lot, um, and and that's also discussed a lot for opponents. So, you know, there's there's training but that that used to be you know if you were playing a left-handed player as a right-handed player you'd go practice again against a a left-handed hitting partner or player so those techniques are still you know they're just more sophisticated in terms of technology there's more technology out there you know now you can look at you can have a heart rate monitor and and um look at the point of uh, lactic acid buildup and things like that, yes, are very sophisticated. But at the end of the day, it comes down to you just have to work hard. Um, I want to get into your right? background, yeah, just for a moment. Yeah. Um, prior to becoming president of the WTA, you were working with the global marketing and representation firm Octagon for a number of years. And, and full disclosure here, I'm a client of theirs. Um, how did that background shape how you view partnerships and how players themselves can connect now with fans and conduct business on their own with all of this different technology and availability of reach? Well, I think that, um, you know, I spent 27 years with, with Octagon and Advantage before they were Octagon. So I grew up uh, at at Octagon and um, and my life there was very very free as long as you did your job and you followed the rules client first always client first so i i always thought about what is the future going to look like and how for for the athlete and and her partnerships what is the return what's the value proposition how can we grow these partnerships because a partnership only works if it's a win-win and that applies across all partnerships, right? So when there's a point of tension, it has to be corrected. So um, I remember one specific example with Amelie Moresmo, who was number one in the world, and she didn't have a shoe and apparel contract, and she'd been with Nike for 14 years, and it was going to be, you know, if you took this at face value, holy cow, how are we going to find her an endorsement? in the shoe and apparel category, which is the most important category for a tennis player. And anyway, long story short, we did a phenomenal deal with, with Reebok, and 
the deal immediately, she immediately, she had not won a Grand Slam. She won Australia, then she won Wimbledon, she won the finals of the WTA. So I knew the athlete side very, very well. I knew how to build value, and obviously Octagon has had a major influence on the development of and the growth of the WTA. So um, I'd been involved in many, many tournaments and brought many tournaments um, to the WTA at the time with the help of the Octagon Network. So I'd been on the board of the WTA for 10 years and um, and had actually witnessed from the moment I started my career that only the top five players in the world uh, on the WTA were able to make enough money to survive. Hmm. And, um, and on the ATP, it was, you know, the top 100, so... Um, or even more. So it, I, I, I have grown up in this sport and um, have had the benefit of, of watching it grow and being part of its growth and thinking outside the box, thinking outside boundaries, looking at new markets, and, and it's really been quite a fascinating journey. Um, and I'll let you Every go- aspect. Yeah, yes. I'll let you go with this. Um, the show is about the future, and, and the future seems to have an inevitable end for the Williams sisters. So I want to ask you one question on the court, which is eventually they are going to retire and age will catch up to them. And you have a lot of exciting things happening. Specifically, it sounds like in Asia as well in the global, the larger globalization of the sport. How do you guys brace for, for what is the end of one of the great dynasties of sports? I think that's an inherent part of the circle of life that applies to sports as well. The impact that the Williams sisters will continue to have on tennis is forever. Um, They will be irreplaceable as sisters, irreplaceable as individual champions and uh, contributors to the sport, and not only to the sport, but beyond the sport, which is what makes it so special and what makes us so privileged to work in women's tennis. But... Every career that comes to an end opens up doors for new careers and new generations. And I've spoken about this since I started working in the sport in 1986. What's going to happen when John McEnroe retires? What will happen when Jimmy Connors retires? American tennis is dead. And then came Agassi and then came Sampras. And what about Steffi Graf? It won't ever be the same. You're right. It will never be the same, but it will be different, and there will be new stars. And Serena and Venus will always be flag bearers for this sport, for for women, for um, for girls, and and you know they are superstars from here till forever. It'll be interesting to see how we're watching this sport in the next five to ten years as well. Mickey Lawler is yes. the president of the WTA. Thank you so much for all the time today. Thank you so much, Bram. Thank you, and and good luck to you. Hope to see you soon in your hometown. Up next, how NBA players have become a major tech investment arm. This is the Future Sport Podcast. The 
Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3 Advance. So let's take a moment to thank our friends at 3 Advance. These guys are ranked one of the nation's top app developers. Their user experience and cloud expertise has helped grow a bunch of sports tech startups, including Team Builder, T-Box Tour, and In-Game Fantasy. So if you're looking for a development partner to bring your future sport tech to life, look these guys up. Go to 3advance.com. They're the team to make it happen, and advance you will. That's the number 3advance.com, and tell them Future Sports sent you. Can the NBA be a leader in where investment in tech is made? There have been a number of high-profile players like Kevin Durant and Andre Iguodala who have spread their interests throughout the tech space. Diamond Leung from The Athletic is here now. Hey, Diamond, how are you? Hey, Bram, how's it going? You know, I named a couple of warriors there, previous warriors, um, located right in Silicon Valley, which makes sense that they would be part of that world. Um, and now the, the players took their tech conference to Canada. Why, why did they do that? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, really started with, uh, you know, a uh, person named uh, Randy Ose, and uh, he's kind of a former player manager, and he took inspiration from, you know, maybe some of these other Silicon Valley uh, players who, who, who began to talk tech and, and, and bring together a player-led conference, and he decided to kind of uh, create his own thing uh, in Toronto, and uh, it's called the Athlete Tech Summit, and I was uh, able to attend uh, earlier in August. And, uh, you know, a lot of players came through. Uh, they were speakers. They were uh, uh, audience members. And I think there's just a lot of interest surrounding this topic. What are they interested in specifically? Are you finding their specific sectors that they want to invest in? You know, I think what I've seen overall is, you know, first, it starts with their, their brand, their own brand. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about social media and how can it be used, um, you know, to, to, to capitalize upon. But also, you know, I think they're interested in investing and, you know, growing wealth. Uh, you know, <laughs> NBA players have money. And, uh, you know, I think um, startups and, and other companies looking for funding see that. And there's opportunities for partnerships there. And, uh, you know, whether it's uh, in technology, whether it's in education, um, one of the interesting, uh, you know, areas of investment that came up during this conference was, you know, the cannabis industry. It's growing um, and I think, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, d- different, uh, you know, segments of, uh, you know, uh, society that are looking already to invest in these uh, groups. And why not NBA athletes as well? Uh, well, it's interesting. They've been at least Adam Silver has been ahead of the curve with how he feels about the use of marijuana, even though it's not legalized throughout the country yet, which it seems to be rolling down that hill. But we'll see. Um, the NFL Players Union built an investment for startup um, and an arm there. Is that what's happening in the NBA or, or are the NBA players kind of doing this on their own? I think the NBA players are doing this on their own. Um, it's pretty organic the way uh, Steph Curry and Andre Godala, you know, have done it. At the same time, you're also seeing the NBA kind of get involved as well. I believe uh, they recently invested in an app called Home Court. And, you know, that that's an app that also has player investors as well. So you're starting to see uh, from the league side, uh, and to be clear, uh, you know, I think Andre Godala, when he first started um, some of the, uh, you know, one of the events, it was through the NBPA as well. So I think from the union side, from the league side, uh, there's plenty of interest to go around. And what are you seeing in the league? What are they interested in? What are, what are the, what's the tech advancements we're going to see in the league soon? Oh, boy. I think, um, you know, obviously they're going to continue with the optical tracking. 
Um, I, you know, the, I think the technology just there just gets better and better as we, um, you know, kind of analyze all the micro movements that these players do. And, you know, there's so much interest in statistics and, and uh, you know, kind of explaining how basketball can be played uh, and also uh, maximized, you know, and I think that's kind of, uh, you know, the, the next wave. And, you know, I understand that the league is also, uh, you know, it was reported that they were con- uh, testing a connected ball as well. And so it's, uh, you know, can that deliver more insights, can, can, uh, whether it's for the teams, the players? Um, I think it's all going toward maximizing uh, basketball play. And I think that can only be good for the league. Diamond Leung from The Athletic. Thanks, Diamond. Thanks, Sam. That will do it for us this week. Remember, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com.